Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the 19th chapter of Proverbs. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know, first of all, that we're in the middle of a series entitled Building Warriors that is on parenting, and secondly, that we've spent, as a result of that larger theme, a significant amount of time mining the wisdom of the wisest man who ever lived in the history of humanity, who's giving his own son advice, and we actually get the opportunity to peer over his shoulder. Uh, So I think we ought to seize that opportunity. And so we've been in Proverbs for a long, long time, uh, for the last two to three weeks in this series. But I'm going to start this morning just with a little bit of executive privilege. I hope you'll indulge me this. Uh, But since we're talking about children and raising children, I thought the theme that we're going to talk about today, how to teach your kids to stand up and to stand out, there are three kids on this campus that I think stand out pretty well. And it's these three. Is that okay? Can I do that? Can I brag on my children? So, so on the left, that's our oldest son, Samuel, and up on the right, that's his ugly dad. We're doing a little FaceTime conversation, and he's in his dorm room where he's now a freshman at Geneva College studying mechanical engineering. I, I don't know where the, well, I do know where the mechanical ability came from. It leapt off of my father went right over my head and landed right on my father's grandson. That's what happened. Uh, but brilliant kid, 1550 SAT score. Yeah, he's a freak. I'm telling you, takes after his mama that way. Um, but I tell you, we're just we're just proud of that kid. He comes home next weekend, so don't tell him that I was talking about him because he's also an introvert and he doesn't like that very much. I'm just taking advantage of the fact that he's not there. Unless you're watching live right now, son, I love you. My dad loves you. Really, he's probably watching with his dorm buddies right now. In the middle is our 13-year-old son, Seth. He doesn't like attention called to him either, but I got to tell you, most, most of us, our kids do something. Martial arts is fairly widely practiced among parents with younger kids, but I got to tell you, without going into great detail or embarrassing my 13-year-old, the barriers that he has had to overcome from where he was earlier in his life to this point of dealing with the yelling and the screaming and the discipline and the full body contact that most assuredly ensues uh, when you participate in something like martial arts. And to tell you that that blue belt has since been replaced with a red and will soon be replaced probably within the next month with a brown, which puts my boy one step from being a provisional black belt in mixed martial arts. I'm proud of that kid. Uh, he's just doing an amazing work. Sure, yeah, go ahead. Clap for Joel's kids. Uh, and then over on the, uh, on the right side, that's our daughter, Gracie. We were honored and, and just privileged. The Lord gave her to our family when she was eight months old. She was born and spent the first 18 months of her life. I said eight months, I meant 18. First 18 months of her life uh, in the People's Republic of China. And what you see there is a stark contrast to when we first got her and she couldn't walk. In fact, at 18 months, she could barely sit up, but she has come a long, long way. She is my spunky little adrenaline junkie. If we wanna do roller coasters or go skiing down the side of a mountain, my boys are like, oh, no, Gracie's like, let me have it. Like she's it, right? And what you see there is a root, the end of a routine, a gymnastics routine. We put her actually in dance early on, uh, like ballet. And we found out she doesn't do ballet very well because she's rough. 
So she doesn't know delicate. She doesn't like, if she pirouettes, she pirouettes violently. And so we watched that and we thought, she ain't gymnastics is a better fit. And that's absolutely true. She now spends way more time upside down than she does right side up. And when you look at that picture, that's actually a picture of her in Vietnam working with our church's team last year uh, with their larger theme where they were working with Vietnamese educators. And that theme had, to, had a connection with gymnastics. So she not only got to perform in Vietnam, she got to work with some of the little kids and even teach them cartwheels and, and things like that. So as I look at these pictures, I'm like, I'm a proud dad. And I would suspect that if the rest of you had this position, or if you were like me, if we, if we had the time for everybody that's in front of me right now to come up on the stage and put pictures up, like when we're done, it'd be spring, wouldn't it? The snowstorm would be over, all the snow would be melted because we've all got something. We've all got a picture on our phones right now. How many of you got a picture on your phone right now? And you're like, oh, look, look at my kid. We, we want to be proud of our kids, don't we? And so our love for them motivates us. This is why we have um, my kids and honor roll student bumper stickers. It's also why we have my kid can beat up your honor roll student stickers. It's because we're looking for some reason, right? I don't, they may not be at the top of the stack in terms of the GPA. I'm going to find some reason to brag on my kid. Now, that, that can lead to an unhealthy place. We've all seen that. I've seen parents who tried to live their own dreams through their kid, and their kid has no identity of their own. I've, I've seen that sort of thing. I've seen this sort of thing in the, in the sports arena, in dance class. I've seen it on the sidelines. Coach, why did my kid get more playing time? Coach, why didn't my kid get that speaking part or that singing part? It's the kind of thing that can drive coaches and teachers and other people just absolutely insane. But at heart, there's an inherently healthy thing about wanting your child to succeed and wanting to brag on your child. In fact, there's a side of this that just reflects the heart of our Heavenly Father. Look at this passage from, from 2 Corinthians. The, the direct command is, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. So there's the directive, but I want you to look at what comes behind it. Then I will welcome you. There's certain kinds of behaviors that when God sees those behaviors in his children, he stands on the precipice of heaven with a thunderous voice and says, that's my kid. So there's something about us when we seek that in our own children that we want to see that in the heart of God. Uh, we, we, we see that reflected in the heart of God as well. So the reflection is, the question is, how do we reflect more of that? How do we emulate God's example with our own kids. Now, throughout this series, we've been trying to get at that, allowing the 127th Psalm to be our guide in that. It says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So the end game here is that we are, we are preparing, we are setting in the bow, we are sending sailing out into the world. The people, those little people living in your house right now, those snarky teenagers living in your house right now, those people are the ones we're supposed to send out in the world building warriors for the next generation. And we've already talked about what that looks like when they're small and they're pooping their pants and what that looks like when they're getting their driver's license and what that looks like when they start to move off to college. And then we've spoken the last three weeks about what godly wisdom embodied in your children looks like. Well, today I want to answer this question. What are the measuring sticks that let me know I'm doing that right? How am I supposed to know? It was, I said this a couple of weeks ago, don't measure God because ultimately it's his decision what happens with your kid. Don't measure your kid. They're their own person. 
which is, and we'll get into this next week when we talk about so many of you whose hearts are broken because your kids just didn't turn out the way you thought they would. You can't blame yourself always for that. Don't measure God, don't measure your kid. But you do have to measure yourself. Am I doing this right? Am I emphasizing the right things as a parent? That's what we want to do. What should we be looking for and praising intentionally? Beyond the GPA, beyond their performance in the athletic arena, beyond how their first day of school picture looked on social media. And what we find in the 19th chapter of Proverbs, as well as in the 6th chapter of Deuteronomy, which Pastor Jeff just read earlier, reorients us to the particular way God wants our children to stand up and stand out. So moms, dads, grandparents, foster parents, people who have influence over a a kid who would be pretty much anybody in front of me right now, because our church is blessed to just be full of them. What, do you, what is it that you need to specialize in? What do you need to focus on? When are those moments when it is very appropriate for you to say and make sure your child hears? That's my kid. When do we need to make sure that we say that? Well, we first need a definition of what success looks like, and we find that in Proverbs 19.1. And there's a bit of a shocking statement here. Solomon says, better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Now I want you to think for a minute about how that clashes against our culture today. Because that would have been a cultural clash statement even in the ancient world. You know, I've probably spoken with hundreds, probably thousands of parents in my years of ministry, including many of you. And there's a certain posture you get in there when you want to brag on your kid. Like, Pastor, my daughter's joining the Peace Corps. Pastor, my son just enlisted. He's going, he's getting ready to graduate basic training. Pastor, my my daughter just got accepted into an Ivy League school with a full scholarship. Even something as simple as what may have happened yesterday in this very room. Pastor, I saw you here. Did you see my boy make that basket? It was nothing but net. And something happens, doesn't it? When we brag about our children, our chest comes out and we stand up a little taller. I mean, we don't even realize we're doing it. There's a sense of strut going on. Like this is what, but but what what if your kid doesn't meet those standards? What's your posture? Think about this for a minute because for most of you, you don't even think about it. Your posture's a little bit different. I've never seen anybody come up to me with that same posture and say, oh, pastor, my, let me tell you about my boy. My boy's struggling. He's living hand to mouth. I'm so proud of him. Pastor, my daughter is, is, she's quite the catch. You know who she's marrying? That cashier down at the Dollar General. Yeah, that, that's, I'm, I'm proud of that. We, there's something about us. You know, Pastor, my, my daughter's a single mom. She's barely making ends meet. I'm so proud of her. Let me tell you why we don't stick our chest out when we say that, but rather we, we kind of collapse in and our, our feet and our eyes get shifty. It's because it's our culture is drenched with materialistic visions of success. We have been conditioned by our environment to shift our posture and our gait when we have to admit things like that about our kids. And in the face of that, I want you to listen to what King Solomon says. Riches are not inherently evil, but if you have to choose between your child being prosperous and your child walking in integrity, choose integrity. Pray for integrity. 
push for integrity, brag on integrity. You know what that means? I'll tell you what it means for those of you who think I was making fun of somebody a few minutes ago because of their job at the Dollar General. It means that if my daughter is faced with a mate who, who makes it makes that kind of a living in an environment like that and an investment banker who has no scruples my role as a father is to push her toward that other guy because integrity is far more important so hear me doesn't matter what you make doesn't matter how fat your wallet is the main thing here is the is god's definition of success and he says listen it's better for you to walk integrity being rich is not a problem necessarily but if you have to choose between the two Choose integrity, which just means to be blameless. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It doesn't. It, it doesn't mean that, that everything's going to be just right all the time in your life, but it does, it does give you a sense of wholeness and a sense of sincerity. You know, during the Renaissance, there were a lot of very famous Spanish sculptors, and, and when they would make a mistake, particularly on a piece of marble that wasn't really cheap to replace, they, would, they had this waxy substance, and they would put it into the cracks. And, and if you didn't know what you were looking for and you were inside their place of business, you, you really couldn't tell that those cracks were there. It looked perfect until you took that piece outside and you held it up to the sun. And immediately, every crack in that thing, you could see it because it would come through that wax. And so these, these sculptors, if they had a piece that didn't require that, on the bottom of the piece, if they were an honest businessman, they would write the Latin phrase, sin sera, which simply means without wax. That's what it means to be sincere. That's what it means to have integrity. That what it mean, that's what it means to be transparent with other people. That's what it means to walk integrity. in integrity. There's nothing plastic about me. I'm not trying to fill in the cracks. I'm not trying to appear more than I am. I'm seeking to walk in integrity. Now, what's more shocking is that Solomon calls us and our children to this kind of life with a full awareness of all of the consequences of poverty. The context emphasizes how important this is. Beginning around chapter 18, verse 23, and ending somewhere around verse 10 of chapter 19, there's this contrast between rich and poor within which this verse occurs. Solomon doesn't have his eyes shut here. He doesn't deny the harsh realities of being poor. In fact, he tells us in this wider passage that the poor aren't in a position to demand fair treatment the way some of the more wealthy are. Uh, they're sometimes abused more so than others by our justice system. And we've seen that even within our own justice system. The ability to have a good lawyer or not can sometimes be the difference between a young man having probation and a young man going to prison simply because of how much money they have committed exactly the same crime. Solomon admits that. He says the poor sometimes are unable to pay their debts and their pleas for extensions often go unheeded. They're more likely to be abused by the system. We've seen that in our society as well. The redlining practices of certain banks that won't lend in, the, in certain areas because of the, the way in which there's, there's a risk there. And, and, and most importantly, Solomon says the poor don't have a lot of friends. Their friends abandon them. And it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, who wants to go to a nice dinner with a poor person? You're going to have to pick up the check. That's what Solomon's saying. He's saying, this is the life of the poor. I'm going into this with my eyes open. I'm not telling you that it's good to be poor. I'm telling you it's better to be poor than it is to have no integrity. 
And if you are going to raise your children, make sure that order of priority is what it should be. He says it is still better, even with all of these realities in view, to be poor and open to all of those vulnerabilities, but have no integrity. Now, what does it look like to teach that principle to your kids? One of my favorite movies that ever came out was the movie Cinderella Man. You guys remember seeing that? Tells the story of a guy named James J. Braddock, who was a championship fighter, boxer in the 1920s, but due to a hand injury combined with the realities of the Great Depression by the 1930s, he and his family were literally living hand to mouth. And, and you're about to see a clip from that movie that comes up on a time when their family is about to face a crisis point. This is the prime opportunity for this father to make a decision. Am I going to choose riches or am I going to choose integrity? Take a look at this. What are you doing, son? I'm being good. I'm being quiet. I'm being safe. Great. <laughs> Daddy! Daddy! Hey, Rosie Cheek! How you doing? Daddy! Chase Star! What? Chase Star. What's all this about? See? It's a salon. Young lady. Your brother's in enough trouble without you telling on him. You understand? It's from the butchers. And he won't say a word about it, will you, Jay? Will you, Jay? Okay, pick it up. Let's go. Do not test me, boy. Right now. Howard, stay here. Johnson had to go away to Delaware to live with his uncle. Why? His parents didn't have enough money for them to eat. Yeah, well, things ain't easy at the moment, Jay. You're right. There's a lot of people worse off than what we are. And just because things ain't easy, that don't give you the excuse to take what's not yours, does it? That's stealing, right? We don't steal. No matter what happens, we don't steal. Not ever. You got me? Are you giving me your word? Yes. Go on. I promise. And I promise you, we will never send you away. It's okay, kid. You got a little scared, I understand.
how different a culture we live in today. Right? Compared to back then. We live in an environment where that American dream is seen as ultimate, don't we? It's okay to want the good life for your kids. I want that for mine. I want them to be better off than I was. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. None of us want our kids to want of anything, but the word of the Lord tells us none of that matters if we teach our children it's okay to betray their own soul just so they can get what they want. A definition of success is for us to grasp God's definition of what it means to stand out. And that means we raise children who, when they display integrity, we say, that's my kid. Display integrity. And you know how integrity happens? It happens through the administration of something called discipline. Fast forward with me to verse 18, and we read these words. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. In fact, the imperative word discipline here, it actually has a two-sided edge to it. One side means to chastise. That's the typical um, thing that we comes to our mind when we think about discipline is that we're reaction to something wrong. But then there's another side that means to instruct. So you set the boundaries, you determine the environment in which your child is going to be raised up, and then you enforce those boundaries. And when you think about that, we, we have that in wider society too, don't we? When you get in your car on the way home today, What's the first thing you're supposed to do before you crank up the car? Yeah, you got to put a seatbelt on. There's going to be speed limit signs posted. You should drive at or below, especially if you're in Shepherdstown. I'm just saying. You, that, that's the rule, right? Some of you had dinner last night and you had a glass of wine or you had a couple beers. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But when you leave and get behind the wheel of a car, the law says... Your blood alcohol level, is, it should be here or below. And if it's above that, you're in violation of the law. And we put all of those things on the books for our greater good, don't we? We don't want to see people die unnecessarily. We don't want to see people being reckless and killing other people unnecessarily. And so what do we do? We set the boundaries, and then we have these people with badges and guns who help us to enforce those boundaries for the well-being of society. Now, the, the instruction that we see here in verse 18 for parents, follows that same pattern. Mom, dad, grandparents, if you're raising a kid responsible, you set the boundaries for that child, and then you enforce those boundaries, and you do it so that your children may live. I want you to pay attention to the gravity of this statement. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. That's contrasted with set and enforce discipline. Moms and dads, the inference here is both clear and frightening. If you do not set and enforce boundaries with your child, you're essentially giving your child a premature death sentence. Anybody have a carbon monoxide detector in your home? We have one. You know why? The same reason so many of you do. It's because unlike propane, unlike natural gas, there's something about this chemical that can't be detected by the senses until it's too late. And we've all read those horror stories in the paper or seen on the internet where an entire family perished overnight out of carbon monoxide poisoning that they were completely unaware of. And the word of the Lord tells us there's another kind of, of gas, if you will. It's tasteless, it's odorless, it's sightless, but it is a poison that is ruining our children. It is destroying huge swaths of our culture. It is the poison of permissiveness. Teachers that are in front of me right now will tell you they see it in their classrooms all the time. 
Police officers who are in front of me right now will tell you, they see it in the streets. Some of our people here, both paid staff and volunteer, who work with our young people will come to me occasionally, exasperated because society is overburdened with dealing with so much because parents won't deal with it. And we've known this, by the way, for more than three decades. In 1987, that goes back a ways, doesn't it? The United States Chamber of Commerce published an article, How to Train Your Child to Be a Delinquent. So obviously it was satirical. Uh, but listen to these bullet points. Number one, this is again from 1987. See if any of this sounds familiar. Number one, from infancy, give him everything he wants so that he will think the world owes him something when he grows up. Number two, Never provide spiritual training. Let them decide whether or not they're going to go to church. Let them decide what's right and what, what's wrong. Wait until they become an adult and let them figure it out on their own. Number three, avoid the word wrong. Number four, pick up after him. Shoes, clothes, do everything for him so that he learns as an adult to throw off every responsibility he has on other people. Number five, Never filter what he reads or what he watches on television. Be sure to sterilize the silverware, but let him feed his mind complete garbage if he wants to. Number six, always take his side against neighbors, teachers, the church, and the police. Teach him through this that they're all against him. Number seven, prepare for a life of grief. I'm not telling you that if your child is sincerely wronged, that you shouldn't stand up for that individual. I'm not telling you that people in authority don't sometimes abuse that authority. I'm not saying as a parent, you don't need to look objectively at things. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. There are times where you might have to take up for your child in the presence of a teacher or, or, or whoever. Our minority brothers and sisters who are part of the covenant family will tell you, even in 2019, young black men have to have a very different conversation with their parents than young white men. And that's not political correctness or rhetoric. That's just the truth. And it's a travesty that it still happens in 2019, but it does. And so I need you to know, I'm, I recognize all of that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't look objectively, but mom and dad, here's what I am saying. You should not raise your child to believe that every time something goes wrong, it's somebody else's fault. Every time you get pulled over is not just because the cop's picking on you. Every time you get a bad grade is not just because the teacher doesn't like you. Sometimes it's because you did something dumb. And so we've got to teach our children to take responsibility and we do that beginning in the home. Because if they don't learn to do it at home, they're not going to learn to do it on the roadways. They're not going to learn to do it in the classroom. They're not going to learn to do it their entire lives. And so what are the principles of godly discipline? I think that's important, an important question, and I think the, the Word of God answers that here. Number one, start early. Notice verse 18 says, there is hope. In fact, you could rightly translate that, while there is hope. The inference here is to do this while they're young. Because when children are younger, am I right? The will is more flexible. So you need to help them start early. Number two, do it in love. In love. Everything you need to do as a parent needs to be done with an attitude, a disposition of love toward your child. Listen to these words from Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but the one who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 
Brothers and sisters, that text it assumes that the motivation behind every mode of discipline, be it instruction or chastisement, is that I love my son, I love my daughter. There's a lot of argument in our culture about forms of discipline. We got into this a few weeks ago. Is it okay to spank? Is it not okay to spank? And of course, in that are categories of what's discipline and what's abuse. Let me define abuse for you. And it is not defined by form, okay? It's not. Spanking works with some of your kids, and you need to keep paddling that rear end. Spanking doesn't work with some of your kids, and you need to look for some other way to do it. Let me define what abuse is. Abuse is any time you set a boundary or you enforce a boundary with a motivation that is anything other than love for your child. That's abuse. You don't have to spank your kid to abuse them. You can spank your kid and not abuse them. Abuse is, I, I've got to ask myself as a father, why am I doing this? Why am I setting this rule? Why this punishment? Does it really fit the crime? And never, ever, ever punish your child while you're angry. I think this is at least one of the multiplicity of applications that Paul had in mind when he told us in Ephesians, be angry, but do not sin. Because your kids are going to tick you off, aren't they? Righteously. Sometimes you just need to, and, so, and I've seen it, and I'm, and, and I'm going to tell you, Mom and Dad, I, you may think, oh my gosh, Pastor thinks I'm horrible. No. I applaud you when I, when I hear you go, boy, I'm in the flesh right now, and you just need to go away. <laughs> you ever felt that way about your kid? Yeah, well, birds, I'm going to pinch your little head off if you don't get out of my sight. You need to go. I will deal with you in a minute. Well, really what you're doing is you're just admitting, all right, I got a sinful propensity here, and I need to hold back on that so that when the punishment comes, and it does need to come, all right, just as bad as punishing on the spot when you're angry is you get over it and you think, well, it's, it's too much trouble now. No, you've got a responsibility. You deal with that kid. You discipline that child. You set those boundaries. You enforce those boundaries, but you do it in love. And number three, do it with clarity. That, that's the whole idea behind this, this thing of instruction. You need to define what those boundaries are, mom and dad, and you need to be clear about that. True discipline means your child should not be walking around on eggshells in your house. If they are, you're doing it wrong. They should not be walking around wondering when is dad going to blow his stack and throw something? When is mom going to go crazy and out of her mind? That's not the kind of household that a kid needs to grow up in. They're walking around on eggshells. But what they do need to walk around in is an environment where they know where the boundaries are. There's a group of child psychologists that were doing some research several years ago, and it was back in the late 80s, early 90s, during a time when, when there was this theory being floated that, that boundaries actually restrict a child. They should just be free to roam and float, right? And so what they did is on several playgrounds, they took the fences away. And what these child psychologists observed was the removal of those fences actually produced a higher level of anxiety, and a sense of uncertainty. S several of the kids would gather kind of at the middle of that playground. And, and there, was, there was just a lot of anxiety and, and, and apprehension there. When those fences got put back, those children played much more freely. You know why? Because they knew where the boundaries were. They knew. You, know, you cross that fence, and that's how you know you get in trouble. Somebody else crosses that fence to threaten you, and they're going to be in trouble. There's something about boundaries that bring clarity, and there's something about clarity that brings security. And your child needs to grow up in a secure home. Amen? 
They do. They need to grow up with that level of confidence. So don't, so don't just make up the rules as you go along. Set a clear, consistent set of boundaries and then enforce those rules when they are challenged because a disciplined child becomes a disciplined adult who is much more likely to live a long, productive life. Do not put a death sentence on your child. Give them discipline. And when they honor that discipline, that's when you stick your chest out and you go, that's my boy. That's my girl. Now, the way they're really going to live that out, though, and here's where the challenge comes for moms and dads, is through demonstration. And this takes us back to the passage that Pastor Jeff read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Take a look at this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Notice the personal pronouns here. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Twelve times in four verses, we see a pronoun that is both personal and possessive. Mom and dad, grandparents, anybody that's got a kid coming up in your home, your responsibility, my responsibility to set the example for my children, to demonstrate for my children what it looks like to stand out from the rest. So can I give you some rubber meets the road examples without y'all thinking I don't like you? Can we do that? When you find money, like a $20 bill or something, in the aisle at Food Lion or Walmart, and your kid's with you, for that matter if your kid's not with you, but your kid is with you, what has your children seen you do with that? And some of you are like, well, if it was 100, it would, no, no. Here's the question. You ever taken your 12-year-old to a restaurant and, and had that 12-year-old hear you tell the lady at the front that he or she was 11 so you could get a discount that you weren't entitled to? Have you ever lectured your child about respect while you're going down the road listening to talk radio and the, the kind of vile invective that speaks of your political opponents like they're subhuman while you're simultaneously telling your children and grandchildren that you need to show respect? To everybody? What's going on with that kind of thing? How about this? We got a lot of blended families in the church, and we love you. We're glad you're here. You've been through a divorce and a remarriage, but your family's growing and flourishing, and we're, we're happy to see that. But, but what about that blended side? Is there anybody in here who pokes the bear when it comes to your ex-spouse while simultaneously expecting all the Brady Bunch to just get along? Anybody? This is what Deuteronomy's talking about. Moses is describing the general pattern of life that would have applied to an ancient Israelite. We've got to apply that to our own routines. And what are our children seeing in that? If you have a problem or a conflict at the church, do you gossip around your dining room table about church leadership and then wonder why your child is so reticent to come to those same leaders when they need spiritual guidance or have a problem? See, all this goes back to a singular question. Am I setting an example that will let them stand out? I don't just discipline them. I demonstrate what that looks like. And then all of that then is given with a posture of deference. Teach your child to live with a posture of deference. This takes us to, to verses 4 and 5. This is the heart of what it means. This is, and in fact, Jesus was asked, what is the heart and soul of the law? Jesus alluded to this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Teach your children to have a posture of deference. There's nothing so shockingly countercultural and nothing that will make a person stand out like someone with a heart for God who has integrity and who lives a life of discipline. More important than how much is in their banking app or what degrees are hanging on their wall or what position they have in society 20 years from now is that they walk in in integrity as people who are disciplined with a posture of deference. All of this has to be driven. You can't can't just discipline yourself in yourself. You can't just white-knuckle this stuff and have it get done. You have to have a heart for God that motivates it. And mom, dad, grandparents, this is the tricky point because your kids don't have that and you can't give that to them. Only God can do that. This is the point at which we, we go, okay, I, I, gotta, I gotta think through this. Because your children, because they were born dead in their trespasses and sins. You know why? Because they got it from you. It's not your fault, you got it from your parents. It's not your parents' fault, they got it from their parents. Well, it is kind of their fault, but you get what I'm saying. This sickness that has followed us all since that great thud in Eden has corrupted your child. They're incapable in and of themselves of doing this, of obeying this command. And so the wider witness of Scripture, and in particular the Old Testament law that stipulated for Israel what was required to please God, it was all wrapped up in this text. But it proves to us that we can't obey this command. In fact, there's not a soul in this room who in your own strength and character can truly love God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. That's what the rest of the law tells us. That's why here at Covenant, we not only don't unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, we give you loads of it. Because the Scriptures teach us, particularly that Old Covenant, it's like a mirror. It reveals who you are, but it can't change you. Right? Some of you, some of you looked in a mirror this morning, from what I can tell. Some of you look longer than others. You look in the mirror and, wow, there's something in my teeth. You look in the mirror and, what, did I sleep on a rock? Like, what's this, why does this side of my face look like this? You look in a mirror and you go, bedhead, wow. But the mirror doesn't fix any of that, does it? That's why there's hairspray and brushes and contact lenses. and Right there, right there at the lavatory as you're looking up at that mirror. I've never heard of anybody looking in a mirror and seeing a problem like something stuck in their teeth and their response to that be to pull the mirror off the wall, try to pick their teeth with the mirror. No, the the mirror is there expressly to reveal what is wrong. Brothers and sisters, that's why the Old Covenant is still in our Bibles. This is God kindly leading us to repentance by revealing some admittedly unpleasant things about us so that we understand that we have to go to a higher source in order to get that it reveals to us and our children our greatest need love god love neighbor you don't do either one and neither do i that's what the bible teaches you don't believe that think about it for a minute think about our frivolous lawsuits shipwrecked marriages over nothing violence 
polarization, isolation from people who are different from us, lack of community and entire subdivisions of neighbors who have nothing in common but their homeowners association. Think of an entire population of people too busy and too harried to help a stranger. Think of a society that murders its own unborn and has no compassion for the refugee. And you're thinking of a society that does not love its neighbor. And if you want to know why, all you have to do is go one level up and look at the way that our culture takes God's name in vain. And I'm not just talking about bad words. I'm talking about people that even claim to know him who walk and speak in a way that misrepresents him, who neglect his law and word, who refine and redefine right and wrong according to their own propensities, according to their own standards. Look at the open rebellion against his commands, even within communities of faith. We do not love our neighbor because we do not love God, who has created our neighbor. Our only hope and our children's only hope is in the one individual in the Bible who was the only one who really stood up and stood out. Sometimes we make the mistake in children's Bible stories of telling them, be like Abraham or be like David or be like, I don't want my kid to be like an adulterer. I don't want my kid to be like a murderer. I didn't, these characters are not good dudes. They were transformed dudes, and for that we can all be thankful. Have you ever noticed, though, how, how particularly the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the writers of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, go to great lengths to absolutely slaughter the reputation of every single character except one. That's when, when we're supposed to teach our kids deference, step number one is to teach our kids they can't do that. To teach our kids that, that, that we're not David, we're Goliath. To teach our kids that we're not the hero of the story. We're the perpetrator and the victim. And we need someone who stood up and stood out. We need ultimately to emulate the only one who came to this earth, who lived in absolute perfection on our behalf because that's what it looks like to love God with all of your heart. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, who then stretched out his arms willingly and bled for your sins and mine on a cross and who was raised three days later bodily from the grave to guarantee eternal life to anyone who would bow their knee to him and receive him for eternal life. That's where we get new hearts. And brothers and sisters, that's what your kids need. That's what my kids require. If they're going to truly walk in integrity, if they're going to truly live in discipline, if they're going to truly demonstrate for my grandchildren one day, if they're going to do all of that, they need this posture of deference that Deuteronomy speaks of, and they can't produce that in and of themselves. Jesus has to give them a new heart. So let me, let me ask you, what are you bragging on in the life of your kid that emphasizes these things, because these are the most important things. What are we doing to make sure our kids really stand there? Are we, sure, are we ensuring that they know? I mean, they don't just hear it out of our mouths. They've seen it in our response to our own lives. They know that we believe their success is not ultimately measured in how popular they are how many Instagram followers they have, what kind of position they ascend to in life, or how much money they make. Have they seen and heard from you, mom, dad, grandparents, foster parents, that there's a, a deeper, much more important indicator by which mom and dad are going to measure success? 
Is the way you express pride in your child measured by these things? Because I'm going to tell you, if we, if we develop a church that is full of parents and grandparents that are committed to this course, you know, ultimately and overall, it's going to result in kids that are going to grow up into disciplined, hardworking adults, young men and women who eventually model what you and I have modeled for them, young men and women who truly worship and give everything to the Lord because their hearts have been changed by the gospel. When we learn to stick our chest out, not at what our culture tells us to, but at what God's word says, that's something. Listen, my heavenly father is bragging on my kid. No matter their money, no matter their position, no matter the number of Instagram followers, if my heavenly father's bragging on the kids he gave to me and my chest isn't also stuck out the problem is with me but if you learn to do that if as parents we can discipline ourselves to strike that posture I'm gonna tell you people will notice your child will flourish and God will be glorified in the way that he deserves to be let's pray together father you're good to us by reminding us in the midst of a, of a culture that changes rapidly that there are some things that will always remain the same and that ultimate in that is your desire for your own glory and for our good. And so, Lord, I pray for the moms, the dads, the grandparents, the foster parents, the, those that, are, that teach our kids on this campus. Father, would you, in the name of Jesus, encourage them today, wherever their kid is right now? Would you teach them, if they have not been doing so, to begin emphasizing the things that your word has spoken about today? May we truly raise up a generation who stand up, and who stand out while the rest of the world focuses on money and power and prestige and social media following and all of the other things like that may we focus on those things that will please you greatly and father for those who who haven't received you as lord and savior may they take that first step because without it they're not going to be able to do this and neither are their kids and so lord may your holy spirit penetrate this place and may people be convicted of their sin and may they turn from it and may they do so out of a heart that now has been given to them that loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength may they pass that down as they are able to their children I pray these things in Jesus name Amen Hi everybody Pastor Joel here and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.